Children's Church. So kids, you are dismissed. And as they're making their way out, I want you to make your way into God's Word. I want you to turn in your Bible with me to Mark chapter 10. If you've got a Bible this morning, turn in, turn in it to Mark chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, find a Bible. Borrow a Bible from someone. Get next to another person who does. As we resume, after a few weeks break, our study of Mark's gospel, following the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through His earthly life and ministry. And as you're turning there, let me just also say this, how grateful I am that over the past few weeks as I have been gone, um, that Pastor Thad has uh, stepped in and brought what I understand. I have not because I'm still playing catch-up from a lot of time away. I've not had a chance to hear the messages yet myself, but everything I'm hearing about them, everything I'm hearing from you that Thad taught over the last few weeks about suffering uh, assures me that it was a powerful, rich study in God's Word, one that we need to have. I'm very, very grateful that Thad uh, stepped up and spoke out of his own experience what God taught him and what God's Word says about suffering in the life of the believer. With that said, as as I mentioned, we're in Mark chapter 10 this morning. We're going to read the passage in just a moment as we pick back up where we left off many weeks ago. But before we do, before we read this morning's passage, I want you to know that that some years ago, um, believe it or not, polls such as the following poll were taken. There was actually a Gallup survey, a secular Gallup survey poll was taken. I don't know if this was back in the 80s or in the early 90s, but the results of that poll, uh, the poll was, was, was about the Christian faith. It was about people's faith. And what this Gallup National Survey of Americans, however many of them there were, discovered or revealed, that in America at that particular point in time, 19 out of 20 people who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that was the question, it was about saving faith in Jesus Christ, 19 out of 20 Americans who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ do so before the age of 25. 19 out of 20. Similarly, only more recently, a Barna survey, that's a a Christian-based national scientific study was conducted that discovered that among American children ages 5 through 13, that American children ages 5 through 13 have, I don't know how they figure this out, but they discovered that American children between 5 and 13 have a 32% probability of trusting Jesus Christ as Savior if they are presented with the message of the gospel. But here's the interesting thing. At age 14 through age 18, that 32% probability drops to four. And at 19 on up, it rises only slightly into adulthood to six. A 6% probability that if presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will believe. Now, I believe with all my heart, as I know and I am sure you do too, that God can save anybody he wants to. Of any age, at any time, in any way, through any means, God can and does save anyone he pleases, regardless of what surveys and polls or anything else have to say. But at the same time, here's what we can't ignore. We can't ignore what both scientific research, but much more than that, literally centuries of experience demonstrate. And it is this, that it is children children more than any other age group in any culture and society, this is so, who are especially receptive to the message of the gospel. 
who are particularly open to the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that anyone and everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in him will be saved. And the reason I begin by sharing all of that with you this morning is because it is that fact, the unique particular openness of children to the gospel of Jesus Christ that helps us better understand what's going on in the passage we are about to read in Mark's gospel. So if you have your Bible, I want you to look at it with me. I'm going to begin reading this morning in Mark chapter 10, verse 13. I'm going to read just down through verse 16, where this is what the Word of God says. Mark writes, and they were bringing, they being people, just people in the crowd, were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, said to his disciples, permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he, Jesus, then took them, the children, into his arms and began to bless them, laying his hands upon them. Now, the deal in this passage, just for a bit of background, just for a bit of of understanding, is that in the ancient world, it was a very common thing, not just in Jewish culture, but in many different, perhaps all ancient cultures. It was a common, familiar thing for people to bring their little children to to so-called holy men, uh, to priests and rabbis, I'm sure in pagan cultures, to shamans, uh, bring their little children to men they considered holy to receive a blessing, to somehow and in some way get this assurance that that God's protection will be on their life, that God will be with them as they go through life, that bad things aren't going to happen to them. You understand the nature of, of what it was that people were after. People would bring their children for a blessing. And so I submit to you that it it shouldn't surprise us at all that as we read God's word, as we read the story of the ministry of Jesus Christ, that people in ancient Israel did the same thing with Jesus that they brought their children to Jesus for a blessing, and that this almost certainly was not the first time that it had happened. And while there are multiple instructive lessons, multiple, I think, interesting lessons we could draw out of this very short passage, all sorts of things we could consider, I believe the most important lessons in this passage, and and thus the ones we're going to focus on this morning, are these three. I've got three things I want to deliver to you this morning. Three lessons from this passage, but they're not lessons about children, about the faith of children, about the the innocence of children, about anything about children, but rather to take it up to another, to the most important level. I think there are three things this passage tells us about Jesus. Three things this passage tells us about Jesus that you and I here 2,000 years later need to understand. And the first one is this, and we're going to kind of bounce around, just, you know, we're going to bounce around the passage a little bit this morning as we do it, so I'll do my best to let you know where I am. But the first one is this. The first thing this passage reveals to or shows us about Jesus is, in fact, number one, his deep affection for children. The fact that Jesus Christ really does have a deep affection for children. Look again at verse 16, and I'll show you what I mean. It says in verse 16 at the conclusion of the passage here, it says that he, Jesus, took them, little children, into his arms and he began to bless them as he laid his hands upon them. Now, there are a couple of ways I really believe, and I think this needs to be said before we get into sort of the nuts and bolts of the text. 
There are a couple of ways in which I believe our understanding, our view of what happens or what is happening here in this particular verse can be, can be tainted and even corrupted and we need to be careful for them. What I mean by that is this, that it is imp- it's possible in one sense to look at what we read there in verse 16 about Jesus taking children into his arms, onto his lap, blessing them and praying over them, whatever it is he's doing, and sort of romanticize it. Sort of like Jesus is some sort, even though he's only 33 years old, like he's some sort of like grandfatherly figure. Like this is a Santa Claus sort of moment. The old softy Jesus who just loves to take children into his arms, and, and, and he's this spiritual vending machine of perpetual happiness. He just exists to, to do nothing nice things for kids. And, and there, so there's a sense in which we can kind of romanticize it because that is a, a very familiar thing perhaps to many of us in our culture. And, and there's not a huge danger in that, but I think we need to acknowledge that's not what's going on here. To another extreme, and in a far more serious way, I think there's a danger, and I think I would be naive to assume that there isn't at least somebody here thinking about it this morning as they read these verses, that our view of what's going on here can be corrupted by what we see in today's headlines about clergy abuse, about corruption by men who are supposedly called to ministry, to pointing people to Jesus Christ and have used that position in horrific and unconscionable ways. And I think we need to be careful that what's going on there, which does need to be, and God will deal with, and that's another discussion for another time, but at the same time, that's not understand anything close to what is happening here. And I want to warn us, I want to urge us not to let what we're seeing in the news be the filter through which we see what we're looking at here. Because neither of those images, ideas, in any way represents the one at the center of the scene or what he was doing. Because when verse 16 tells us that he, that it is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who took these children into his arms and began to bless them, laying his hands upon them. Do you remember who that is? Do you remember what the Bible tells us about this one? Because in another place in my Bible, your Bible says it too in Colossians chapter 1, here is what we are told about this one who is taking little children into his arms one at a time and blessing them. My Bible says yours does too, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is the one by whom all things were created in the heavens and on the earth, visible or invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him, all things were created through him, he's before all things, and in him, Jesus Christ, all things hold together. That is the one who in Mark 10, 16 is saying, come on, little children, into my arms and bless them. Literally, the text, the verb is he fervently blessed them. He enthusiastically, joyfully blessed them as their parents brought them to him. And here's the unmistakable message we should take from that. The unmistakable message we should take from that is that each and every child that has ever lived on the face of the earth as a unique creation of God has inherent worth, has intrinsic worth, has eternal worth. That every child is precious to him. Every child is an object of his love. And children are every bit as valuable to him as the most productive, fruitful, mature, sophisticated, spiritual adult who's ever walked the planet. And the reason we need to understand that, among probably several, is because it also helps explain the special intensity of the command that Jesus gave in verse 14. 
Look in your Bible again at verse 14. That when Jesus saw his disciples were sending them away, he was indignant and he said to them, no, 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 permit the children to come to me. Don't hinder the children from coming to me because, here's why, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, this is very, very important. I don't want you to miss what I'm about to say. We need to understand that Jesus was not saying, everybody say, Jesus wasn't saying Jesus was not saying that children, simply by virtue of being children, automatically qualify for heaven. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying that they're just automatically saved because they're cute, right? Because they're sweet, because they're nice, because we love them so much. Jesus is not saying that children just automatically qualify for heaven and that somehow when they grow up, they no longer qualify. Something changes. That's not what's going on here. No, what Jesus was saying was this. Out of the overflow of his fervent affection for children, of his deep love for children, what he was saying is the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In other words, he was saying, gang, these kids have something to teach us. These children that are being brought to me, there is a lesson in the way they are coming to me and what they are coming to me for, for us to understand. And and that lesson is this, as one commentator puts it, because he puts it better than I ever could. He said, the lesson is this. It's not so much, quote, the innocence and humility of children, for as this commentator writes, children are not invariably either innocent or humble. If you've got a three-year-old, you know that's true. They're not innocent. They're not humble. They are little sinners, and they have a sin nature. But rather, the lesson is this, the fact that children, even in that state, are unselfconscious. They are receptive. And here's the most important thing. They are content to be dependent upon others' care and provision for them. And the message Jesus is trying to send is that it is in such a spirit that the kingdom of God must be received, like a child, like a dependent humble child. So make no mistake, Jesus really does love the little children, all the children of the world. You should teach your sons and daughters. You should keep teaching them. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But again, at the same time, the the point here is we shouldn't stop there. Because what Jesus was ultimately trying to do by, by having the children come to him, in this moment as the children were coming to him, is elevate the conversation to something even more important than, than the fact that he loves children. And it's this, it's the second thing I want you to see. What Jesus was using these children, their example to do, was to secondly show us his insistence on the way of salvation. And that's the second thing that I want you to see in this passage. Jesus' insistence on the way of salvation. Again, to to just repeat, to underscore, to stress what I've already said When Jesus, in verse 14, says, permit the children to come to me, don't hinder them, for the kingdom of of God belongs to such as these. Again, the key word is dependence. He's pointing out a child's spirit of dependence. The reality, the, the understanding that without somebody else's help, I'm lost. Without somebody else's help, I am on my own and in deep, deep trouble. And And if there's any doubt about that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here about the kingdom of heaven, it's dispelled by what he said in verse 15. So look at verse 15 in your Bible. Jesus says, don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. For truly I say to you, that's Q4, listen up, people. Here's the message. For whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, in a spirit of dependence, in a spirit of humility, 
will, literally Jesus says, will by no means get in to it at all. And that got me thinking, okay, if Jesus is, first of all, as he says that, that the only way to get into the kingdom of heaven is like a child in a spirit of humble dependence. And, and he's got to be that insistent about it. And he really is insisting here in this passage that that is the one and only way to receive the gift of eternal life. It must mean, here's the thought that I had, it must mean we think there are other ways, right? That we generally as human beings think there must be other ways to get in. And so I asked myself this question, self, what are the alternatives? What are the possibilities? What other ways do we think, and those maybe more importantly, those around us think, they can receive God's gift of eternal life? They can get into heaven. And I started to brainstorm. And in a couple of minutes, I came up with all kinds of other possibilities. Let me share with you just a few. Because this is the way those we encounter think. And, and perhaps it's the way some of us here this morning think, or once did before we knew Jesus. What are the alternatives to entering or receiving the kingdom of heaven that we think might work to receive God's gift of eternal life? One of them is many people in the world today think, though they might never express it this way, that the kingdom of heaven can be taken by force. That the kingdom of heaven can be taken by force. And what I mean by that is this. Man, when I get there, I'll just talk my way in, right? There's that dude Peter at the gate, right? And we'll have a little conversation. And, and I'll just, I'll, I'll insist, I'll persuade, I'll use my powers of personality and sheer insistence. Why? Because that's how I've gotten everything else I want in life. I just insist. I just push. I've got a strong personality. It worked with others. Why wouldn't it work with God? That sounds silly, but I think there are people who think that way. I'll be able to talk my way in and prove that I deserve it. Another more familiar way people think, we as human beings think we might receive God's gift of eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, is by merit. That is, while I was here on earth, I did a lot of good stuff for a lot of people. I was a generous person. I was a giving person. I gave to those in need. I gave to charity. I gave away a lot. I think it was back in the 1980s. It was Ted Turner, the founder of CNN, multi-billionaire, said something to the effect, and I'm loosely paraphrasing, but I remember it clearly. He had just given a billion dollars, donated a billion dollars to the United Nations among his many philanthropic efforts, and he said, that ought to be good enough for God. I gave a billion dollars. That ought to get me in. And many people think today, by merit, because of what I did and the extravagance of it, God will see that and say, all right, come aboard. Third way I thought of that's all over the world today is by effort. And, and effort, receiving God's gift of eternal life by effort, differs from merit in this sense, that, that most of us aren't ever going to be rich or famous, right? We're never going to be recognized for our vast wealth or our, our incredible accomplishments here on the planet. We're ordinary folks. But at the same time, what else are we? Well, we're, we're hardworking, we're Maybe we're good-looking, we're upstanding, we're fair-dealing, we're flag-waving, we're good people. We're Iowans, right? We're the salt of the earth. We do stuff right. And because I lived a good life, and I did it the right way, that again ought to be good enough for God. Another possibility entirely, a way that it might be thought the kingdom of heaven could be obtained is by pity by sympathy or by pity, what I mean by that is this, that since life dealt you an unfair hand, and it deals lots of people an unfair hand, the unfair hand of poverty, the unfair hand of disease, the unfair hand of abuse or brokenness and all the corruption of this world, 
They know that life didn't work out so well, so God owes me something in the afterlife. That simply because I'm sick or poor or needy, I'm qualified. And listen, I, I realize I can go some sensitive places, but, but there is that thought that those who didn't get it here will get it there. Then the last possibility that, I, that occurred to me is simply that the kingdom of heaven can be received by default. And what I mean by that is this, that absent any phenomenal achievements in life and absent any phenomenal maybe adversity in life, I didn't rob a bank. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't do bad stuff. And isn't that who heaven's for? Good people who didn't do bad stuff. Now, I may be oversimplifying, and I am, but at the same time, I do so to stress the fact that Jesus was insistent. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Here's what Jesus is saying. The only way to get eternal life is to receive it. The only way to be assured of heaven is to receive it, to in utter, the key word is dependence, right? In utter unqualified dependence, recognize what? I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. That Savior has a name. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth and lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death on the cross for my sin, that he rose from the dead three days later and that he did that for me, and that if I will repent of my sin and trust him by faith, not impress him, not persuade him, trust him, I will be saved. And what Jesus is telling us through this interaction with some little children is you and I can't have heaven any other way. You know, I've noticed something about little children and, and maybe you've noticed it too. Have you ever noticed how little kids aren't afraid to ask for stuff you're afraid to ask for? Have you ever, ever just noticed that? Can I have a cookie? Can I have a dollar? Can I have $10? Can I have this? Can I have that? Little kids have no filter. If they want it and they see it, they're going to ask for it. And you know what I've noticed? Because little kids aren't afraid to ask for the stuff that I'm afraid to ask for. Little kids get stuff that I never get, right? <laughs> They always get, I mean, they're told no occasionally, but they get all kinds of stuff. For one reason, they aren't afraid to ask. In fact, I was thinking about this. Whenever we go to, whenever we go to Hy-V, uh, my five-year-old invariably, inevitably, as we're checking out, asks the checker for a sucker. You know, they got the little bucket of suckers on the counter. Now, never mind the fact that he's already had a cookie, a slice of cheese, a free cheese curd, and whatever other, he's had half a meal by the time we've gotten through the store, but in, inevitably, we get to the checkout line, and he will ask the checker, because they've always had that bucket there before, can I have a dumb, dumb sucker? Well, we were there about a month ago, and, and I knew it was coming. We got to the checkout line, we had our groceries, we put them out, we get up to the checker, and my son, Lincoln, he says, can I have a sucker? The checker says, I'm sorry, I'm all out. No bucket of suckers today. You know, sad, right? No lie. The, the manager of the store is standing behind this particular checker. He goes, I got you, man. I got you covered. He leaves the checkout stand, runs to the candy aisle, grabs the bag of 200 dumb, dumb suckers off the shelf, brings it back, opens it up, goes, dude, which one do you want, right? Here's your sucker. Why? Because he asked. All he did was ask. I'm like, stop it. No. He asked for what others are afraid to ask for, and he got what the rest of us don't usually get. Here's why I tell you that story. 
Could it be that you, as you sit here this morning, could it be that you, as you sit here this morning, the only thing that up until today has kept you from receiving God's gift of salvation is you're just not humble enough to ask. You're just not humble enough to admit you have a problem, that it isn't about your good works. It's not about being a nice guy. It isn't you're better than that. I believe on the last day, many, 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 many people will not enter into the kingdom of heaven for that reason alone. They just weren't willing to ask, to be dependent. But what does our Bible say? What did Jesus say? Truly I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child is not entering into it at all. If you have not trusted Jesus Christ, why not? And what's it going to take? And why not today? Because Jesus is insistent through this beautiful picture of his deep affection for children. He is deeply insistent on the one way of salvation. That's a huge lesson, but it's not the last one. There's one more thing in the passage that we need to see. And it's this. In this brief encounter, this brief scene with parents bringing their little children to Jesus for a blessing, we see, number one, his deep affection for children. We see, number two, his insistence on the way of salvation. And we see, third and finally, back at the beginning of the story, Jesus, this may surprise us, his indignation toward the disciples. The indignation Jesus had toward his disciples. Look again with me at verses 13 and 14. It says, And they, the people, were bringing their children, the word literally means little children, to him, so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Real quick word study for you here, okay? A little compare and contrast. Because in verse 13, when it says the disciples rebuked the people who were bringing their kids to Jesus, that word literally means they chided them. They, they warned them. Uh, we get the sense that what the disciples were saying to the people is, come on, guys, could we just lay off the kid thing for a while? Can we just give the man some space for once? I mean, uh, this is all well and good, but he's a busy guy, right? There's chiding, just warning, just nagging the people. Take your kids and go somewhere else. That's verse 13. How does Jesus respond to that in verse 14? The Bible says he was indignant. Now, that word is very, very different. And what it means is Jesus was incensed. He was hot with anger. He was, in a holy way, outraged by what the disciples were doing. His disciples, his own guys, his closest friends. And for this reason alone, Jesus was hot with anger toward his disciples because of what they were doing. They were standing in the way of people getting to him. They were coming between Jesus and the people. Now, why the disciples felt obligated to do that, to be Jesus' posse, to be his advance team, to be his security perimeter, doesn't much matter. It doesn't matter why they were doing it. What matters, what does matter, is Jesus wasn't having it. That Jesus specifically wasn't going to tolerate anything or anyone, even his closest earthly friends, who were obstructing people's access to him. After all, how can they come to know him if they can't even get to him? 
And so if the, the previous point, the second point of the sermon was geared primarily this morning toward those of us here who do not yet know Jesus Christ, I want you to know this third and final point is geared toward those of us who do. Because this is the disciples. What's contained in this point is for you and me who consider ourselves and in fact are followers of the Son. And in the time we have left, I want to try to apply what's going on here in verses 13 and 14 in a couple of ways. And the first way is to simply ask ourselves a question, a question you ask of yourself as I ask it of me. And the question is a very serious one, and it's this. What am I doing that keeps people from seeing Jesus? What do I do in my life? Maybe what don't I do in my life that keeps people from seeing Jesus? Say, what do I mean? Well, how about the way you handle conflict at work? When bad stuff happens, how do you respond? How about the way do you relate to your husband or to your wife in front of your kids, or even frankly out of earshot, because they figure it out eventually? The way things like that are handled in the home. Maybe it's the way you act when you receive poor service at a restaurant or a checkout line, and you huff and puff and stomp your foot and blow off steam and complain. Keeps people from seeing Jesus. Maybe it's the way you talk about those whom God has put in authority over your life, be it your parents, your boss, or elected officials whom you don't happen to like or agree with. And it keeps people, because of the way you speak about them, from seeing Jesus. As I said, maybe it's not what you do do, maybe it's what you and I don't do. Like, we don't share the gospel when the opportunity is clearly there. We don't stand up for the classmate who is being abused and, and mistreated and suffering for it, or the coworker, or we don't speak up when something in the workplace isn't done right. Listen, I could go on, but, but I'm not the Holy Spirit, neither are you. Fortunately, he's among us this morning, and he can show us, and he will show us, I believe, with all my heart if we ask him this question, Lord, what am I doing that keeps people from seeing Jesus. He will show us if we ask him, and here's the thing, none of us is beyond the need for asking. Lord, what is it? And that's what we're going to do. But before we do, before I provide us, provide me and you with a few minutes to pray about it, or even before I share the other application, I want to change up the end of the message here just a little bit, okay, because of where I want to go with the other application. So here's what I'm going to do, and you've got to promise to hang with me. I'm going to give you the big idea, but I'm not done yet, okay? I know that many of you hear big idea, and you think donuts, right? It's time. <laughs> not today. I'm going to give you the big idea, and then I need about five or six more minutes. Let me give you the big idea of the message, then we will actually apply what we're seeing in the Word. Because the big idea of today's message is this, it's really a challenge. It's a challenge to my heart, it's a challenge to ours. And this may strike you as odd, but I think it's the message we're supposed to take from it, and it is this, it is to glorify Jesus by getting out of His way. Let's glorify Jesus Christ by getting out of of his way. You say, that's not biblical. Oh, yes, it is. Remember when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized? What did John say? He must increase and I must what? It's time for me to step exit stage right. I'm here to be an instrument in his hand, not an obstacle to his plan. I want to be an instrument for him, not an obstacle to him. 
We need to sometimes, the best thing we can do is glorify Jesus by getting out of his way and simply doing what he asks us to do now. Once you've written that down or committed it to memory or whatever it is you do with every week's big idea, once you've done that, I want to invite you just for the next minute or two just to bow your head. Maybe you need to sketch out a note in front of you and to pray. I'm not going to pray because I've got something else I want to share with you after you take a moment to pray. But right now where you are, just, just going to invite you to bow your head. Remember that, that you are sitting in the presence of a Savior who loves you, who has a deep, deep affection for you, who laid down his life for you. You can't be snatched out of his hand. And as such, you... The Holy Spirit who lives within you is ready to help. I want to invite you just for the next 60 seconds to say, Lord, here's the question. Is there anything I'm doing in my life that's keeping others from seeing you? And as you ask that question and he brings something to mind, confess it. Say, Lord, yes, I agree. Help me now to change. Give you about 60 seconds, 90 seconds, just in the quietness of this moment to seek him. Father, thank you this morning that the one who knows us best, all the good and the bad, is also the same one who loves us most. That, Father, when we lay the hard stuff, the messy stuff of our lives before you, you're not surprised. You don't hold out a, a hand and say, come no closer. But you do quite the opposite. You take us into your arms and you bless us because of our humble and broken, contrite spirits. Father, I don't know what's been laid before you in the last few moments, but I'm thankful that you're able. You're able to take it, able to deal with it, and able to end it and give a fresh start. Father, we praise you for the fact that you are able to do that and that you will take the things we give you and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name. As I said, there's one more thing I want to do before we close in response to this passage. And, uh, and what we're going to do is this. We've just spent a few moments praying. I want to spend a few more moments in prayer. But we're specifically what we're going to do with the last few minutes of our service is we're going to pray for those who, beginning next Sunday, are going to be responsible for teaching our children here at Maranatha. And they know, they've been warned that we're going to do this, our Sunday school teachers so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want everybody where you are right now just to stand up, okay? Just stand where you are. And I'm going to have the worship team come back up as well as we 
We're just going to use this and go use this to go into the closing moments of our service, closing song. Here's what I'm going to ask. If you are a Sunday school teacher, and not just kids, you know what, youth Sunday school, if our adult Sunday school teachers are here, our children's church workers are here, if that is you in any way, starting next Sunday, you're in one of those roles, I want you, as we've done often before, to step into the aisles. Just right now, get up from where you are. I want all of our teachers to step into the aisles. And we're going to pray blessings over you, pray God's help for you. Come on around into this aisle and this aisle, not the outside ones. How about the inside ones right here? And those of you who've been around, you know what we do. Once, once they are in the aisles, the rest of us, as you are willing and able to do so, I want you just to move from where you are in your aisle and move to one of these people. Move around, three or four or five of you around them. Right now, just move to the aisles, out this way. Gather around them. If you're a visitor and this makes you uncomfortable, hang in there. It won't last long. But here's what I want. I want you to gather around. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Gather around our teachers. If you need to come down and make some more room in the aisles, we can do that. There's plenty of room right here in front. And here's what I want to ask you to do. If you are at the center of one of these circles, you're feeling very much on the spot at the moment, aren't you? Here's what I want you to do. I want you just to tell whoever's in your circle in a moment, I want you to tell them your name, if they don't know you, and what your role is. I'm the fifth and sixth grade Sunday school teacher. I'm the adult class teacher, whatever it is. And then I'm going to invite those, the rest of you, gathered around them to pray for them. And here's some ways. Jeff, if we just throw those, just throw all six of them up there. These are some of the ways we can pray for these leaders in the next few minutes because they are taking what we've just looked at in the Word to the front lines starting next Sunday. And so I'm going to invite you to pray for them, uh, that you give them a love for the students in their class, that you give them time in their week because this is voluntary to prepare well, that, we, that God will give these teachers chances to share the gospel, that God would protect their family. That's, that's vitally important because anytime somebody steps up their game, Satan steps up his attack. We're going to pray for their protection. Pray for unity in their classroom, that, that teaching and leading children and others would be a joy. And really that last one is simply that as the weeks and months go by between now and next spring, they would experience a deeper and deeper love for Jesus Christ. So right now in your circle, if you're at the center, tell them who you are, tell them what your role is, and then those of you in, around the circle who are willing to do so, just begin to offer these prayers. We're going to do this for about the next four or five